Well, we want to continue to build up on the dating methods here. And I just want to give you some scientific evidences of a young earth to show you that it's not just the dating methods that are supporting the Bible, but there are so many sciences. We're not against science. We're, we love science as creationists. The difference is, as I said, it's that bias that we apply to the data, to the science, that causes us to come up with an interpretation that is either consistent with the Word of God or inconsistent with it. And science can be and is consistent with the Word of God when interpreted properly. So we want to talk about these scientific evidences for a young earth. Now, you might ask, well, who cares, really? Why does it matter if we believe the earth is young or if we believe the earth is old? Who cares? Well, a lot of people do. First of all, I think the credibility of the book of Genesis is at stake here. Because if the earth is millions and billions of years old, then Genesis cannot be correct. It's inaccurate. And I think the average person can read the book of Genesis and understand it. It doesn't take some special you know, guru to, to tell you that this means a day is a day. The other thing is the credibility of Jesus would be at stake because we see that the book of Genesis is quoted by Jesus many times, at least 25 times. Every New Testament author quotes Genesis at least one time. So a book that's considered in Jesus' day to be very important, quoted as historical truth in Jesus' day, today is being laughed at, scoffed at, chewed out, spit up because we don't think that it's accurate. I think that the evolutionists care whether the earth is young or not. Because if the earth is just 6,000 years old, their theory looks silly. So they certainly cannot allow themselves to think that way. And as I showed you here in the dating methods, that clearly the gospel of Jesus is at stake. Because if the earth is millions and billions of years old, then there was death before man which means Jesus' death on the cross is just natural. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. And he could have stayed up in heaven and said, you're forgiven. Not had to die on the cross. Not had to take the beatings. Not have to do any of those things. So the, the whole idea that Genesis is literal truth is extremely important for the gospel. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to believe in creation to be a Christian. The gospel of Jesus is what counts on that. What I'm saying is this, is that when we would go out and evangelize, many, many times we would hear people who would not believe or listen to the gospel simply because they believed that the Bible had already been proven wrong by science. If it's not right in Genesis, why would it be right in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? And so it is an important issue for us to look at. Let's look at this example. Is the sun shrinking? Well, according to our textbooks it is. Do you know since 1836, we have observed through direct visual measurement the sun's diameter. And it is shrinking at a rate of about 0.1% each century, or about 5 feet every hour. So, in other words, 5 hours ago it should have been 25 feet bigger. The sun is losing mass. It's burning up about 5 million tons Per second. That means not long ago the sun would have absorbed Venus and Mercury. It would have been so big, Venus and Mercury would have been gone. Not to mention we would be burning up here as well. Well, there's a lot of things here with this sun. So it not only cannot be that old because it would be too large, 
we're at a perfect location away from the sun. Now, you go back 6,000 years, no big deal. But a million years, that is a, a big deal. There's also the faint sun paradox. You see, evolution teaches that the sun's power comes from fusion of hydrogen and helium deep into the sun's core. But this is problematic. You see, the sun should brighten, according to evolutionary theory, by 25% after three and a half billion years. So the sun would have been much fainter, only warming the earth to about 31 degrees Fahrenheit three and a half billion years ago. Now keep in mind, they say the earth is 4.6 billion years old. But yet the fossil record shows the exact opposite the fossil record says that the sun wasn't fainter back then, but yet we had a very lush vegetation, a wonderful climate. Something's wrong. And I can tell you it's not the Bible. Now, we looked at carbon dating before, so I'm not going to get into this too much outside of the fact to give you real quickly an understanding here. In the dating methods, we said the carbon dating, radiation comes from the sun, it hits the nitrogen in the atmosphere, then that nitrogen is turned into carbon-14, a radioactive element. In our atmosphere, we have carbon-12, carbon-14. I breathe it in, so the ratio out in the air should be the same that it is in my body. And when I die, I stop eating, I stop breathing, so I stop taking in that carbon-14. It starts leaving my body. So in the dating methods, all they do is they go and measure how much carbon-14 has left the body. Once you stop eating and drinking and taking it in, it has no place to go but out. We talked about in the dating methods that it is forming, carbon-14 is forming 28 to 37% faster than it is leaving our atmosphere. We should reach an equilibrium like that tank of water. You put a tank of water there, put a hose in, have holes drilled up the tank. Water will eventually reach an equilibrium. The, the amount coming in the tank will equal the amount leaving the tank through the holes. Likewise, the amount of carbon-14 coming into our atmosphere should equal the amount leaving the atmosphere in 30,000 years. Yet we have not reached that equilibrium in 4.6 billion years, supposedly. No, this is saying that the Earth can't even be 30,000 years old. And this is why, you know, we are finding carbon in diamonds, as we said, because... The half-lifes are not accurate, and the earth is only about 6,000 years old. Diamonds, which are taking 1 to 3 billion years, they say, to form, shouldn't have any more carbon in them, but it's filled with carbon. This is why, as we said before, that we have living mollusk shells that are 2,300 years old and freshly killed seals 1,300 years dead and so on. Now, since we talked about that in the dating methods, we don't need to get into that here again, but... You do need to understand that that is evidence of a young earth. Now, if you'd like more information on the dating methods as well, you can get this book here, The Mythology of Modern Dating Methods, or our a DVD from the Answers in Genesis called The Geology Set, which will give you a lot more if you're interested. Anyway, we can also look at this question. Was the earth ever a hot, molten mass? Well, our textbooks say it was. 
Here we see whole earth science, and we can see many, many more. Uh, any current science textbook today will tell you this for the most part. As the earth formed, I'll say, the earth's surface was hot, and there were large pools of bubbling lava. Now, what I find interesting about that is that lines right up with Genesis, doesn't it? Right there in Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the hot molten magma. Yeah, no. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? Yeah, the waters. You see, evolution and the Bible are not consistent in any way, shape, or form. We need to choose which one you're going to follow, God and his word or man and his fallible wisdom. So anyway... They're saying that the earth started out as this molten magma. They say that granite would be taking millions of years for it to cool down. We talked about those polonium halos in the dating methods. I want to give you a little bit more information here. There's a book here called Creation's Tiny Mystery by Robert Gentry. Now, Robert Gentry discovered these things in granite, like we said, but the difference is, is he believed that this was created rocks. We now believe that that's not the case. However, these polonium halos have been a gold mine for discrediting the half-life being constant in rocks, as we talked about before. That's very important. So, as you can see these halos, as I mentioned before, it's like a firecracker. But if you would stick a firecracker and throw it in a, you know, a pond or some kind of water, it leaves an energy signature initially. However that energy signature goes away because it's, you know, liquid. If it's thicker mud, it stays. But molten magma wouldn't stay. It would be like water, just thicker water. It would leave a signature and then it would go away. And so these polonium halos should not be left in granite. Now we explained how they formed in the dating methods. A little complicated, maybe not too exciting to hear, but it's important to understand. But what Gentry thought was that it was evidence that God created the world like that, because it had a half-life of a thousandth of a second that granites must have formed that quickly. We now see that there does seem to be a better explanation, but nonetheless it's saying that these polonium halos had to form still quickly in a matter of hours to days, not millions of years. The other problem is with granites, when granites slowly cool down, they have small crystals in them. The faster it cools down, the larger the crystals that are found in them. Today, granite is filled with large crystals, suggesting it did not cool down slowly over millions of years like what we're being taught in our textbooks. This is evidence of a young Earth. Helium, where is the helium? Helium does not combine with other atoms. It diffuses out, it escapes into the atmosphere. So really, all of it should have leaked out of the atmosphere in less than 10,000 years. Yet the rocks are still filled with helium. 58% of helium is still present in zircon crystals. And so basically, with the present observational studies that we see of how helium escapes out of rocks today, the earth is 6,000 years old exactly, plus or minus 2,000 years. Now, by the way, that was a, a prediction that was made that if the earth is young, the Bible says it should be 6,000 years. They didn't go out seeking this. The evidence just fit it perfectly. 
So critics said, well, helium must have been bottled up somehow, you know, locked up in a glass bottle somehow in these rocks. No, because it is wedged between flat mica sheets. Now, if you've seen mica, it's like layered, very porous. uh, You know, you can go right through the layers. Therefore, that is a terrible uh, rescue device to try and say that helium was bottled up. How about population statistics? This is one of my favorites. You know, they say in 1999... They said the world's population topped 6 billion people. Today we are at 7 billion people. It is continuing to grow very quickly. From 1999, 6 billion to now 7 billion already. Population statistics grow very slowly at first, but then it grows exponentially, skyrockets. I always tell kids, I said, if you guys want to get rich, here's what you need to do. Uh, You go home and you ask your parents tonight, I hope they're not here, you ask your parents, you know, mom, dad, can I maybe stop getting an allowance? Maybe some of you don't get an allowance, but if you do, say, you know, I would like to stop getting an allowance, at least as much as I'm getting right now. All I want is to get one penny a week. That's it, just one penny a week, and I'll be happy. Now, because I do want to, you know, buy some gum from time to time, how about this? How about every week, though, we double it? So, you know, next week, we'll get two cents. And the week after that, just four. And the week after that, just eight cents, okay? And and, and all I want to do is let's just do this for one year. Fifty-two weeks, we'll call it good. Sound like a pretty good deal? No? Well, it's a pretty good deal, believe me. Here's the thing, it does, it starts out slow, that's how population is. You know, two people can only have a couple of kids, and then those couple of kids, now you got four that can have kids, and then you got eight that can have kids for a while, and so on. Look at this, you get one cent, two cents, four cents, eight cents, 16, 32, 64, a buck 28, we'll call it a dollar 25 to make it easy, 250, five dollars in 10 weeks. You've been working two and a half months, and all you're getting is five dollars a week which probably sounds pretty good to my kids, but $5 a week isn't that much. And that's just after 10 weeks. But after that, then it goes to $10, I mean, this is getting pretty impressive. We'll just call it 600 again. $1,200 a week. a week. That's just after 20 weeks. You're not even through a half a year yet. Yeah, $2,400, $4,800. And then you're getting, you know, just rounding it, $10,000, By the time... You are done with a year. You are going to be billionaires every week. And your parents are going to be put in the poorhouse. <laughs> That's the way human population is. Look at this textbook here. It says in 1810, there were one billion people. I want you to see I'm not making this stuff up. This is stuff that they're teaching in our schools. And I believe this is true. A billion people in 1810. But today, seven billion But because of this rapid population growth, what they're doing in our schools is they're teaching your kids that you don't want to have too many kids, you know, one or two at most, because the world is getting overpopulated. 
It's the overpopulation myth. It is a myth. The world is not overpopulated. Do you know that Jacksonville, Florida has over 25 billion square feet? And there's only 7 billion people on Earth. Not the United States. Earth. That means the entire world's population could fit in Jacksonville, Florida. There's a lot more land in the world than there is in Florida, let alone Jacksonville. Now, granted, you know, that would be crowded. You know, you each get about three square feet. But, nonetheless, if it's overcrowded where you're living, can I make a suggestion? Move! There's plenty of land in Colorado, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, let alone other countries, other continents. Yeah, it's not overcrowded. That is a population myth. Now, if evolution were true, however, and people have been here the last 100,000 years, then it would be overpopulated. You see, there should be 150,000 people per square inch. Yeah, you ought to be able to pick up a handful of dirt and have human bones everywhere in there. But we don't see that. Why? Because the earth isn't that old and people haven't been here 100,000 years. It's young, about 6,000 years old. We also see that there was a recent explosion of human diversity. Genetic studies have been done to find out how long it would take to get the current diversity with the current genes that we have today. And research shows here, done here in Tennessee, that the maximum likelihood for accelerated growth is 5,115 years to get the diversity we have in human, generation, in human population today. 5,100 years. That sounds awfully close to the Bible, doesn't it? Yet that's what genetics is showing. Not only that, but we have seen recently that most DNA mutations have come about in the last 2,000 years. The University of Washington, they did a study and they showed that 91% of harmful mutations emerged in the last 5,000 years. Alan Keenan of Cornell University said, humans today carry a much larger load of deleterious variants than our species carried just prior to its massive expansion just a couple hundred generations ago. We're falling apart. And that's exactly what not only the Bible says, but the second law of thermodynamics would say. But the fact is that it's happened in the last 2,000 years is, is very important. Because if people have been here for 100,000 years, by now we ought to be a mess, far more than what we are today. Because of DNA just deteriorates. We also see with population statistics, there was a lady in New Zealand... In December of 1984, she was 112 years old and she had 450 descendants. The interesting thing about that is World Book Encyclopedia says that there was a growth rate of about 1.8%, which is basically doubling the population every 39 years. Back in 1650, there were 600 million people on the earth. 1950, 2,400 million. That means that, according to observational science, that the population doubled every 150 years. A little different than what World Book Encyclopedia said. But, nonetheless, doubling every 150 years. What's fascinating about that fact is this. The World Book of Knowledge says there are 200 million Arabs and 18 million Jews. So if you take the time from the time of Abraham 
That means the population for the Arabs have doubled every 150 years. Exactly. Now, the Jews, they doubled every 182 years, which makes sense because the Jews have been persecuted throughout history with the pogroms, the Holocaust, all of that, so it's taken them a little longer to double. But nonetheless, what we see in observational science, the facts are saying population statistics double about every 150 years. Well, the population that we have today at 7 billion means it only doubles 29 and a half times. That means it doubled every 152 years, which is exactly what we see in observational science. That the current population today has exactly what the statistics say is supposed to happen if the Earth is about 4,400 years old. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought you said the earth was 6,000 years old. It is, but what happened 4,400 years ago? Ah, Noah's flood, and it started over again, didn't it? Exactly. Now, by the way, evolutionists have to do something with this. Why don't we see all the human bones, too? Based on DNA studies, scientists are now putting forth that the, there was a catastrophe of some sort about 70,000 years ago that reduced the human population to just a few thousand people. So it created a genetic bottleneck, they proposed, that some kind of volcano did that. I think it was some kind of Noah's flood and not 70,000 years ago, but about 4,400 years ago. Just makes sense. But the world is out there saying you're overpopulated. People here like Jacques Cousteau said that we must stabilize the population of the world and eliminate 350,000 people per day to do so. Yeah. Charles Worcester, he was the Environmental Defense Fund a guy, he said, people are the cause of all the problems. We have too many of them. We need to get rid of some of them. And this, speaking on the ban of DDT, is as good of a way as any. Isn't that something? Here on the platform for the United Nations Urban Ecological Summit held in Istanbul, Turkey, way back in 1996, there was a convention and they said that we must either reduce the Earth's human population to one billion or reduce the standard of living to an agrarian peasant status. Sounds like a communistic socialistic philosophy. Exactly. And that is intentional. Because you see, they're believing that we are overpopulated. But the Bible says, no, God will take care of us. Yeah, there's plenty of land, there's plenty of food. It's greed that causes, you know, famines and things like that. Peter Singer, he is a professor at Princeton, who favors killing babies. He used to favor them, killing them up to 28 days old out of the womb. He now even says up to six months you ought to be able to kill them. Yeah, and this is a guy that can teach your children if you send them off to Princeton. Isn't that nice? He says Christianity is our foe. If animal rights is to succeed, we must destroy the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Guys, we can't live in our little shells thinking that this kind of thing isn't being preached and taught out there to our kids. It is. We're being lied to. All over the place. We have here Alan Gregg from the Rockefeller Foundation says, the world has a cancer and the cancer is man. Isn't that nice? Or Ted Turner, you know, he used to be on CNN. He says, a total world population of 250 to 300 million people or a 95% decline from present levels would be ideal. Now, that is the goal 
of the new world order. That is the goal of the United Nations, to reduce the world's population. Because in order to have control over you, they need to have less of you. And I know that sounds all conspiracy theory-like, but guys, just do some research. It's there. You can go to Elberton, Georgia, on Highway 77, and just 100 yards off the road, out in the field, we have what are called the Georgia Guidestones. And on those stones, they have what are called the Ten Commandments of the New Age. And what you see, this is what they look like here. There are these Ten Commandments, obviously mimicking the Ten Commandments of Scripture, but certainly not in content. Number one is to maintain humanity under a half billion people in perpetual balance with nature. These stones are filled with Masonic symbols. And by the way, nobody knows who put this up. Some guy anonymously in a suit came in to give the money for it, to have it built, and gave a false name, all of that. We don't know where the money came from or who it is. But the other interesting thing is this county has one of the highest divorce rates and crime rates of the country. And it's just a little dinky town, a little dinky county. Go Google the Georgia Guidestones and and read up on that a little bit. It's very interesting. But all of these things, we we fulfilled about eight of these Ten Commandments already, ultimately. You know, abolishing private property and restricting uh, the rights to have arms, you know, bear guns, things like that. So anyway, uh, that is the goal of the New World Order. But regardless of the future, the current population shows that The population started around 4,400 years ago, and that is exactly and perfectly in line with what the scriptures say. How about astronomy? I love this part, too. Astronomy. You know, astronomers have observed supernovas, and they have observed about every 30 years a star blows up in what is called a supernova. If the universe is billions of years old, as evolutionists are trying to tell you, We should have several hundred million of these things out there that we can see. But in fact, less than 300 have been observed. That would indicate that the earth is young, not 4.6 billion years old. Not only that, but they'll try and tell you that we see stars forming today. How many of you guys have gone out at night, looked up at the Big Dipper and thought, Wow, I see another star there. It's the really Big Dipper. No, you've never seen that, have you? Why? Because we don't see stars forming. Now, I know, some of you might be, oh, yes, we do. We, we've got this one out here, out there in that constellation right there, that, that, that's a star forming. Oh, you mean that ball of gas? Yeah, 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 that ball of, oh, no, that's a ball of gas that you believe is a star forming. You see, actually seeing a star form and believing you're seeing a star form can be two completely different things. It could be dust clearing, a star showing behind or, or, you know, coming through gas. But we've never seen stars form. But our textbooks tell us it happens. Our textbooks tell us that red giant stars evolve into white dwarf stars over billions of years. My question would be this. Now, is that your opinion or is that based on observational science? Because there's not a scientist out in the world that can prove that. I can prove it's wrong. They can't prove it's happening. How can I prove it's wrong? History. Do you know that we have historical records from Egypt? The Egyptian hieroglyphs from 2000 B.C. tell us that Sirius was a red star. 
Even in 50 B.C., we see Cicero stepping in and telling us that Sirius was red. Seneca tells us it was redder than Mars. Ptolemy, in 150 A.D., said it was one of the six red stars. Yeah, but you know that today it is a white binary star? Now, wait a minute. Our textbook said that's supposed to take place over billions of years. Yet, from 150 A.D. to today, it's happened. They're wrong, people. They are wrong. And by the way, I don't even think the sun is a star. We say, well, the sun is a star. Why? Because then the stars can be suns. And those stars can be suns for other planets. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not denying that the sun has some of the same makeup as stars. But the only reason you believe the sun is a star is because it's what the astronomers are telling you because they see through spectrograms and things like that, spectrographs, they see uh, the same kind of gases. Well, guess what? We're made of the same kind of stuff animals are too, but we're very different. Besides, in Genesis, the Bible tells me that God also made the stars separate from the sun for whole different reasons. We also see in 1 Corinthians 15, it's talking about the makeup of of flesh, of animals and people and how it's different. And then it goes on and it even says the stars are different than the sun. And stars differ from one another. And some people, well, it's talking about brightness. No, look at the context. It's not talking about brightness. It's talking about makeup here. And so the, the, the sun is not a star, despite what you've been taught. That's based on a secular worldview, not a biblical one. But the secular world will also tell you that these stars are forming to replace those that have burned out. And the ones that are forming are blue. They say that hydrogen gas collapses under their own gravity to form this new star. So hydrogen gas keeps collapsing in. Any of you work with gases? You know that can't be true. Gases resist compression. Always, they always fill space because gas pressure far exceeds the the minuscule force of gravity. Observational science tells us, impossible. So what they do is they default by saying, well, explosions cause it to happen. Explosions force it together. We can test that today. Our science camps, we do lots of explosions. And guess what? It doesn't compress the gas. It even causes it to expand further. Clouds of gas always have a weak magnetic field, but compression increases that field strength. Okay, this would cause further expansion, like polar opposites and magnetism. Also, we see gas clouds have small amounts of angular momentum as they rotate. So a collapsing cloud would spin like a skater pulling arms in, causing the, you know, the, the centrifugal force to prevent collapse. Again, the opposite directional energies. So, no, we don't see stars forming today, and even the idea of it goes against observational science. How about the moon? We're losing the moon. According to NASA, four centimeters every year. Yeah, here's an impact article saying we're losing it. It's moving away from us. Again, second law of thermodynamics, entropy, it's what I would expect to see. But if we're losing it, Four centimeters a year, that means five years ago, it should have been about 20 centimeters closer to Earth. 6,000 years ago, no big deal. A million years ago, big deal. 
It'd be skimming the earth. Maybe that's what happened to the dinosaurs. <laughs> At least the tall ones. Maybe they got mooned. You know, hop. <laughs> no. I don't think so. We even have the inverse square law, which basically says the force of attraction between two objects is inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. In other words, if the distance is one-third, the force of attraction between the two becomes nine times greater. That's a problem for the tides, because if you take the moon and bring it a third closer, the pull of gravity on the tides would be nine times greater. The earth would be flooded every morning and every evening by the tides. We're not living on an earth that's millions and billions of years old. We're living on an earth that's just about 6,000 years old. And God created that moon as a lesser light to rule the night. We have comets. Comets are very interesting because every time they orbit the sun, they burn up. They lose material because it's, you know, gas and ice and, and it burns up. Even evolutionists say that a comet has a life expectancy of about 10,000 years. Now, if the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, comets are only 10,000 years old, why do we see them? That shouldn't happen. They should have been burned up millions of years ago, billions of years ago. So they have to come up with a rescue device. What do they say? Well, in 1950, this guy named Jan Ort proposed, really wished, hoped, and prayed, that there was a great spherical shell out in the far reaches of the, the frontiers of the galaxies here. This big ball of gas and ice. And somehow, there were chunks of ice that would get knocked off of that thing, somehow get knocked into our galaxy, somehow get knocked off into our orbit in our solar system, and we get to see them today. That's how we see comets. Does that sound like observational science to you? Oh, I bet some of you think, well, maybe the Hubble telescope has seen it. Well, guess what? Do you know this Oort cloud? Do you know where it is? They say it's 50,000 astronomical units away. What's an astronomical unit? The distance between the sun and the earth, 93 million miles. Well, here's the amazing thing about that. Do you know Pluto is only 39 astronomical units? Yet this is 50,000 astronomical units away. Now you tell me, what do we know about Pluto? Hardly anything, right? We can't even decide if it's a planet or not. So what do you think you're going to know about something 50,000 astronomical units away? Nothing. As a matter of fact, do you know that nobody has ever seen the Oort cloud? Not even Jan Oort himself saw it. Not even the Hubble telescope has seen the Oort cloud. This uh, Matson here, he speaks against creationists. And when we use this argument for a young earth, he said, Sorry, fellas, if you want to use this comet argument, it's up to you to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the Oort cloud and other sources don't exist. Aren't you glad our court systems don't work that way? That's like me saying, you know what? Watermelons are blue until you cut them open. That's when they turn red. Prove I'm wrong. And until you can prove I'm wrong, that's the truth. It's called shifting the burden of proof. That's illogical, and it's unscientific. Comets are here. They're less than 10,000 years life expectancy because the Earth is only 6,000 years old makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And we don't have to make up stuff to explain it. 
evolution has the sun and the stars evolving before the earth was here. But God says in Genesis 1 that the earth is here before the sun and the stars. You see, evolution is backwards with even what the Bible says in the order of things as well. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. It's that simple. Everything about evolution is backwards according to the Bible. The earth is before the sun and the stars according to the Bible, but as I said, evolution has the sun and the stars before the earth. The Bible says the oceans were here before the land, but evolution says the land was here before the oceans. The Bible says light before the sun, yet evolution says the sun was the first light. We see in the atmosphere that it was between two layers of water, according to the Bible, yet evolution says it's above a layer. The Bible says plants were the first life forms that were created, yet we see in evolution that marine organisms were the first life that was on this planet. The Bible says fruit trees come before fish. Evolution has the opposite. The Bible says fish before insects. Evolution has the opposite. The Bible says land vegetation before the sun. Evolution has the opposite. The Bible says marine mammals before land mammals. Evolution has the opposite. The Bible says birds before land reptiles. Evolution has the opposite. You see, you can't believe in both. You need to choose one or the other. If you're going to be on the side of truth, it better be the scriptures. Magnetism, the earth is losing its magnetism. Since 1829, we've measured it. Really, in the last 150 years, the decline of the magnetic field has gone down by 6%. Do you know at that rate of decay, you go back just 100,000 years, you'd have an electromagnetic field of neutron star and the earth would collapse in on itself? The earth couldn't even be 100,000 years old let alone the 4.6 billion they're trying to tell you it is. Another neat thing about astronomy here, the magnetic field. In 1974, 1975, there was the Mariner 10 spacecraft that went on to Mercury and Neptune. They wanted to see what the magnetic field was there on Mercury. So it took a measurement. Well, in 2011... They sent another probe by there again, and they got the electromagnetic field measurements again. And since 1974, it has declined by 7.8%. That's quite a bit. So, by the way, those planets can't be very old either then. But the interesting part about this is in 1984... Okay, They went first in 74. In 1984, Dr. Russell Humphreys who is with the Institute for Creation Research. He used a creation model saying that the planet started as water, just like the Earth did. Remember, evolutionists say it was a molten mass. The Bible says it was water. So he thought a creation model has these planets all starting as water. Using that model to predict the magnetic strength of Uranus, Neptune, and Mercury, he predicted what it should be back in 1984. 2011 rolls around, they go and they find out what it is. Do you know that Russell Humphreys was only 1.8% off? The evolutionists who made their predictions, hundreds of percents off. Starting with the creation model even gives us more accurate science when that science can be observable. It's that simple. 
The only way evolution makes sense is when we talk about theories and maybes and could bes and perhapses. But when we have observational science, evolution never, ever fits. We have the dust on the moon. Now, I know Answers in Genesis says creation shouldn't use this dust in the moon argument anymore, and I'll explain why. But I think it's a valid argument if used properly. When they went to the moon, they were expecting that there would be all kinds of thick dust on the moon. Isaac Asimov, back in 1959, says, I get a picture, therefore, of the first spaceship picking out a nice level place for landing purposes, coming in slowly downward, tail first, and sinking majestically out of sight. The reason Answers in Genesis says don't use this argument anymore is because of this. By the time they went to the moon, they knew they were wrong. They had fixed the mistake. But it does not negate the problem that they wasted billions of dollars making these long legs with big feet on this lunar module because initially they thought that if this moon has been there for millions and billions of years, the dust should have collected for millions and billions of years, there should be all kinds of dust on the moon. Even our children's book back then said there is just deep gray dust, 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 dust on the moon. But when they went there, there was just a little bit. That's why you could see their footprints on the moon. One sixty-seventh of the moon dust is from space. The actual measured amount of dust turned out to be 2.7 inches per million years, or 1,033 feet in 4.6 billion years. That would be a lot of dust. But instead, there's not much there suggesting, and again, that the earth would be young. But again, I have to admit that they did have this problem solved before they went, and that's why it's an argument that's probably not one of our better ones to use. People also ask me, too, about this Higgs boson. This isn't necessarily scientific evidence of a young earth, but it's scientific evidence that the Big Bang is a joke. You see, the Higgs boson was called the God particle. Theoretically, it was to allow matter to clump together after the so-called Big Bang occurred. And so this was to prove the Big Bang. And billions of dollars have been spent on this thing. Uh, the problem is particles having mass would fit a creation or evolutionary model. It doesn't disprove creation at all. And it was called Higgs boson because it's a Higgs field is what they were dealing with. And they wanted to see how matter would behave in the Higgs field. Well, they proved that particles that have mass interact with the Higgs field. That's all they proved. And it was like basically seeing a shadow of a shadow, too, by the way. Uh, even Dawkins, I believe it was, he lost $100 on a bet. He didn't even think they'd find us. But they did. So it was good science. But it has nothing to do with proving evolution true or creation wrong. So just know that. We're not going to get into that too much here. Anyway, how about the Earth's rotation? Do you know the Earth is spinning 1,000 miles per hour at the equator, and we're not even dizzy? That's amazing. 1,000 miles per hour. But because of this second law of thermodynamics and what the Bible would say, it, it is in perfect line. It's also wearing out. It's slowing down. Here we see Pensacola News said that a thousandth of a second or more daily, the Earth's rotation is slowing down. We can look at this in many astronomy magazines. Here you see these are the times that they have added leap seconds 
to account for or keep in line with the slowing down of the Earth's rotation. They actually add leap seconds, like we add a leap year. Time to kill. They say the Earth's rotation is slowing down. To compensate for this lagging motion, June will be one second longer than normal. This leap second, announced by the International Earth Rotation Service in February, will keep calendar time in close alignment with international time. So, we're we're accounting for the slowing down of the Earth's spin. Now, wait a minute, though. Let's take this a step further. If the Earth is slowing down, that means you go back in time. It's speeding up, isn't it? Yeah. Now, there's also something called the Coriolis effect. As the Earth spins, it drags the atmosphere around with it. Now, this is in any junior high textbook. They'll teach you that. The Earth's atmosphere gets drug around with it. Here's the problem. You go back one million years, if the Earth is slowing down today, a million years ago, it was spinning a lot faster. That means the Earth's atmosphere would also get drug around more, and we would have wind patterns then of 5,000 miles per hour. So those dinosaurs that didn't get mooned (laughs) blew off the Earth. No. But this is what it would mean, logically, scientifically, How about deserts? There's a process called decertification. That is the growth of deserts. Do you know that we have watched the deserts grow? They grow about four miles a year. So the Sahara Desert, according to that growth rate, is only 4,000 years old. The whole desert would, would accumulate in that time based on observational science. Now again, that's interesting. 4,000 years, that's around the time the flood's getting over. We'd expect deserts coming about soon after that. How about oil? Oil is under great pressures. Those rocks are are pressures of 20,000 pounds per square inch. Geologists say that rocks can't hold that pressure for more than 10,000 years, so why is it still there? Shouldn't be there anymore. Yeah. This says that the earth must be less than 10,000 years old, according to what geologists would say. Now, they also tell you that oil takes millions of years to form, right? No, it doesn't. Actually, here we see oil and gas. Both are thought to be from organisms that once lived in the sea. And heat and pressure over millions of years change it, they say. Well, why then, in 1996, was a $22 million project approved that they were able to take and make oil from sewage sludge in 30 minutes? But yet we see here at Sinclair, they say their motor oil. At the bottom there it says, mellowed 100 million years. That's how long it took to get that oil. Well, guys, if oil is sea creatures and and organisms like that under heat and pressure that have been changed, where would oil come from? Can you imagine how many millions of animals and people died in Noah's flood? Yeah. That's where oil comes from, Noah's flood. So next time you go to the gas pump to put in gas, you might want to thank great, 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 grandpa because you could be putting him in there. That's where some of the oil comes from. By the way, I believe oil is a renewable resource too. And many geologists are now starting to think that way. I'm not going to get into that today, but just know that there's great evidence saying it is a renewable resource. How about the ice cores? There's a giant freezer in Denver, Colorado, that took these ice core drills from Greenland. They were 10,000 feet long or deep, whatever you'd want to say. 
And so they're in that freezer. Now those ice cores have these layers in them. They are believed to be thawing and freezing periods. So in general, they will say that every layer of this ice then that you can see is like a summer, winter, or a year, you might say. That's how they date ice is by those layers. This 10,000 feet in Greenland, there were 135,000 layers in there, so they say that that ice has to be about 135,000 years old. Well, here is a plane, a lost squadron of airplanes that landed on the glaciers in World War II. We found them using sonar 48 years later, but it was under 263 feet of ice. That's a lot of ice. They melted a hole down to that thing to, to take it apart piece by piece, put the pieces back up the hole, put it back together, and they've actually flown this airplane today. It's a P-38 they call Glacier Girl. When they melted the hole down through the ice, you could see the layers. You could see all those layers. Now, if this is since 1948, we should not have that many layers, should we? There should be one for every year. There were almost a thousand layers of ice there telling us that it should be almost a thousand years old which is obviously incorrect. What it tells me is that these layers, you can't count that to date ice. You take what we saw here was five and a half feet of ice accumulated every year. You take that observational rate, apply that into the 10,000 feet of ice that we have in Greenland, that whole thing would form in 4,400 years about. That means that's right in line with Noah's flood getting over. When the ice age is beginning, by the way, when that ice would accumulate. And if that's unfamiliar with you, why the ice age would occur after Noah's flood, see our DVD on dinosaurs, ice age, and the pre-flood world. There are annual layers that seem to form in just one snowfall. You look on a window after it snows, skid in your car, look at the layers. There are hundreds of layers sometimes in that. So... It isn't a matter of layers counting them to get the date. But that's what they do, and that's how they get these old, old ages. Fossil species. If the earth is old, here's the thing. The species have been replaced about 20 times in 600 million years, according to evolution. That would mean one would expect the numbers of species alive at any time in history should be far less than the 1.3 million species that we have alive today. About 650,000 at any given time. So, only 10% of the species should have a living representative today. Because evolution, they've been changing all the time. You should have about 10% represented in the fossil record of what's alive today. Make sense? If the earth is old, 90% of them should be extinct. Here's the problem. Now, we have only named, by the way, 2% of the species that we have found. Only 2% have been named. If the Bible is true, there should be no new animal kinds after day six of creation. They'll have similarities. Dogs will be dogs, cats will be cats, and so on. If the earth is 6,000 years old, Bjorn Curtin has shown that 88% of the mammal species that are in Europe today are also present in the fossils. In other words, 88% that's alive today, we see in the fossil record, there is no change in the fossil record. 
99% of them are found in the fossils elsewhere. In other words, 99% of every mammal species that is alive today we have found in the fossil record. Why is that if the earth is billions of years old? Dr. James Valentine showed 76.8% of marine mollusk species in California alone are in the fossils. In other words, the fossil record is a very accurate representation of the species that are alive today and vice versa. But we should only find less than 10% of them. No, fossils show the earth to be young. We see erosion. They'll tell you that the Grand Canyon formed over millions of years by the Colorado River slowly eroding it away. Well, guys, you need to look at this because the fact is this. The canyon is there. We can go and see it. We can see the layers of earth in that canyon. Those are the facts. Now you've got to interpret the facts based on a bias. And evolutionists, their bias is the earth is old. So they say, well, it must have formed slowly over millions of years. But a Bible-believing Christian says, wait a minute. I think it formed quickly by a lot of water called Noah's Flood, not a little water called the Colorado River. So let's see which prediction, which bias fits the science best. Because here's another textbook saying the Colorado River has cut through layer upon layer of rock over millions of years. Did you know that if you would build a dam across the Grand Canyon, there would be huge lakes that would form behind it? Yeah, they even have names for them. I mean, the size of many states. They have here Grand Lake and Hopi Lake. Those lakes covering many states are believed to have been there even by secular evolutionary geologists. That's important because here's the other thing. Do you know that the Grand Canyon cuts through a mountain range? Yeah, the Colorado River enters the Grand Canyon at 2,800 feet above sea level. It leaves at 1,800 feet. But it's cutting through a mountain that is 6,900 to 8,500 feet high. How does a river entering at 2,800 feet climb up to an 8,500 foot level to erode it away? When I went to school, I was taught rivers will go around mountains, not up and over them. Something doesn't make sense here. Even the geology of the area says there is no way the Colorado River did this. Something's wrong with the evolutionary interpretation. Well, like I said, there'd be huge lakes behind there if there was a dam. Today, when a dam breaks, it leaves a very unique signature. Uh, You see, the waters can't all go out at one time, so the waters are going in all different directions, so it leaves what are called barbed canyons here where on the outside the other end of the dam where the dam waters are rushing out it leaves these acute angles matter of fact you pick up a map any map you look at the rivers they always are in Y's less than 90 degrees that is just physics of how things take place But when a dam breaks, that's what you see on one side, but on the other side, barbed canyons. Well, guess what we see here in the Grand Canyon? On the other side are wise. But where all these huge lakes were, barbed canyons. This is evidence that the Grand Canyon was caused by a dam break, probably shortly after the flood, 
when either softer sediments were there or perhaps even the ice age where there was you know an ice dam that could have been there something like that and then that broke and those waters from huge lakes the size of many states rushed through and that would carve through a mountain that is the best evidence of where we get the Grand Canyon. Not only that, but check out this here from our national parks. They say this is millions of years of erosion, and we drive for hours to go to these national parks to see millions of years of erosion. Here we see some more. Millions of years of erosion. Here again, millions of years of erosion. Or is it? Actually, this is one night of rain on a dirt pile. One night of rain. Yeah. This is crazy, guys. By the way, some of these slides are coming from creation science evangelism. Some of them we've done. We might have a little different twist on a few of them. Here's some more millions of years of erosion along a roadside. But it wasn't millions of years. It was just a few months. I don't know if you ever see the TV show Mythbusters. If they have a really big thing to test, what's the first thing they do? They make a small scale of it. Right. Because the, the small-scale model is going to do what the big model will do. And so if this is what we're seeing on a small scale, do you suppose that a global upheaval like Noah's flood would do the same thing but on a bigger scale and give us our national parks? You bet. So when you're considering you know, these national parks and the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon especially, you need to think about this. First of all, the top is higher than the bottom. Pretty obvious, right? Well, the river runs through the bottom. The top is higher than where the river enters the canyon. And rivers don't flow uphill. There's no delta either, by the way. Where's all the debris from this? They don't know. So the only conclusion can be the river didn't make that canyon. And speaking of the delta and where's all the missing uh, material, we can look at other erosion. Do you know that they, the scientists can measure erosion? And they say there are 20 billion tons of sediment that disappear each year. Now, subduction could account only for 1 billion ton, you know, disappearing in the oceans. That leaves 19 billion tons to account for somewhere. Where is it going? Because at this rate, it would take only 12 million years to get all of the sediment we have in the oceans. 12 million. Not 4.6 billion. 12 million. Now, again, I'm not saying the earth is 12 million years old. At the current rate of erosion, the continents should erode flat in 14 million years only. How can we have rocks 300 times older than that that are still above sea level? It makes no sense. And we go and we look at the rocks and you see these nice bent layers in sedimentary rock. How does that happen? Well, pressure Heat and pressure will cause it to soften and do it. No, heat and pressure causes sedimentary rock to become what we call metamorphic rock. It changes the chemical consistency of it. Completely different rocks. Sedimentary rock is rock that's been laid down by water. And we see in sedimentary rock these bent layers. Guys, you can't bend concrete. It breaks, it's brittle, it cracks. That's what rocks do, unless this was a softer mud when that happened which is evidence of a flood. The Tapete sandstones in Grand Canyon. Again, the evolutionists say that heat and pressure from rocks above made it pliable. But the heat would transform layers into quartzite, 
marble and other metamorphic rocks, and this is still sandstone, so that's not the explanation. This means that these rocks had to be soft when they were being moved. And the Tapit sandstones aren't just in the Grand Canyon. Look at how much of the Tapit sandstones there are across North America and beyond, even into northern Africa and southern Israel. Only a global flood could carry this kind of sediment and deposit it in such thick layers across many continents. We have salt in the oceans. Today, our oceans, they measure them, they're getting about 3.6% salt in there. Well, if you would start from absolutely no salt to 3.6% salt, at the current rate, it would take 42 million years to get there. Again, I'm not saying that the earth is 42 million years old. What I'm saying is this, it can't be 4.6 billion. That's a long ways off. But there are also explanations of why it would get saltier faster. You see Noah's flood churning up everything, putting a lot of sodium salt in, you know, dissolving it, would cause it to get saltier a lot faster. And you could easily go from fresh water to salt water in less than 5,000 years. And by the way, people say, well, how can you get freshwater fish and saltwater fish? Well, freshwater fish can become saltwater fish in, in a couple of years' time easily. You can do this experiment at home even by slowly adding salt to the water. They can adapt. You see, we believe in adaptations, slow adaptations. But you can only adapt with what your DNA will allow you to do. From a freshwater crocodile to a saltwater crocodile, that's an easy change, but from a rock to a crock, that's a big change. See what I'm saying? To get a dinosaur to turn into a bird, you're, you're going outside of information in your DNA. That's not an adaptation. That's evolutionary lies. Adaptations are okay. Stratolayer and fossils. We talked about the geological column earlier in the dating methods, and you see how each one of these layers gets an age, a date, and an index fossil. But each one of those layers are hundreds of thousands of years apart. Yet we find in the fossils many, 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 many times, trees and other fossils even, that go through many layers. Now, do these trees stand there upright for millions of years as the layers build up over top of them? No, we don't see that observing, you know, observational science today. What we see is that these trees rot before that would happen doesn't make any sense unless these were buried in a flood, and especially since some of them are found upside down at times. Scientists estimate as well that there are 20,000 trees, conservatively, probably 40,000 trees at the bottom of Spirit Lake from Mount St. Helens. When it erupted, it put all kinds of trees on the lake, millions of them. What they discovered is that those trees became waterlogged like this, then they sank down to the bottom in an upright position. And today, there are over 20,000 logs in an upright position at the bottom of Spirit Lake. If you drain that lake, it would look like a forest grew there, just like we see at Specimen Ridge in Yellowstone Park. They say trees grew for millions of years, you know, in thousands of years apart. I say Noah's flood probably put a whole bunch of trees on the waters. They got caught in areas... Uh, over the years, they got waterlogged, sank to the bottom, and it looks like a forest. And they get buried in many layers. Fossils. 
They say in our textbooks they take millions of years to form, yet we know they can form very quickly. Here's a petrified dog and a petrified tree. That gives new meaning to the word tree bark, doesn't it? (laughs) Here is a fish giving birth in the fossil record. It got buried so quickly it didn't even have time to get its last push. That's rapid burial and quick fossilization. Here's a cowboy leg fossilized in the cowboy boot. The boot manufacturers say the boot was made in about 1950, so we know fossils can form in less than that amount of time. Yeah, fossils form quickly. That's evidence of Noah's flood in a young earth. Trees. Trees are evidence of a young earth. We have here the bristlecone pines. are the oldest trees alive today, 4,300 years old. Now, I know you may have heard, well, there are trees 9,000 years old. That's based on carbon dating, which can give false dates. Tree rings, the most accurate way of dating, says it's 4,300 years old. That's the oldest tree. Why? Is it just a coincidence that the oldest trees are 4,300 years old and Noah's flood is ending about 4,400 years ago? I don't think that's a coincidence. I'd say science is backing exactly what the Bible says. We have the coral reefs. In World War II, parts of the Great Barrier Reef were destroyed, so they watched it grow back for 20 years, and they could measure its growth. At the growth rate of the Great Barrier Reef, the entire thing would grow in less than 4,200 years. Again, falling perfectly in line with Noah's flood getting over. Even the Indian Ocean, that tsunami that destroyed much of the reefs there, they've been watching them grow back at amazing speeds. We have caves like stalactites and stalagmites. When you go there, they'll tell you, don't touch them, don't touch them. It takes thousands and hundreds of thousands of years for these things to grow. In some cases, these caves represent millions of years. Here you see Carlsbad's Cavern here. It it talks about 250 million years ago. Tiny drops of water over millions of years silently created the world's most awesome monuments to the wonders of nature. Millions of years? Really? Because here's the Lincoln Memorial, which was built in 1922, and this photo was taken in 1960s, and we see these stalactites hanging from these pipes. That didn't take millions of years. Here is a bat that got covered up by one here, a stalagmite. Now, that bat couldn't sit there for millions of years without rotting away. It had to form awfully quickly to cover that bat up. Here's a refrigeration shed built in the 1920s in Pensacola, Florida. And we've got those growing there inside that. This one here in Indiana, 40 years, that entire thing grew. Look at those pipes covered with them. This picture here was taken in 1987 of a level 5 lead mine in Australia. It was 55 years old at the time, and you can see some people standing there that we've got circled for you. But all of those grew in 55 years. Here's a 13-inch stalactite growing under a building in Florida. It was opened in the fall of 1993. Here's one that had to be taken off of the floor because it was a tripping hazard. Or you can go to what is called Teepee Fountain in Wyoming. Basically, this farmer, there was water coming up out of the ground, so he stuck a pipe in there. It was warm, mineral-rich water. 
Well, the water kept coming up over the pipe, and in just 100 years, this thing grew quite large. Basically, how this happens is the same way you see in a bathtub or a sink. When the water is dripping, if you have mineral-rich water, hard water, it leaves a little stain of mineral deposits on the bottom of your tub there. And you just take some lime away or whatever to get rid of it, right? Well, if you don't get rid of that, over years, it builds up if that water's there. If you have mineral-rich water, you're going to get stalactites and stalagmites to grow very easily. And so T.P. Fountain, after 100 years, looked like this. Do you suppose that the mineral-rich water of Noah's flood churning everything up Water is dripping in caves, that that would cause these things to grow very quickly? If it's happening today, it happened even faster back then. I'll tell you what, that's going to take a lot of lime away to get rid of that one, isn't it? Yeah. How about ancient bacteria that has been found with DNA in it? In 2000, scientists resurrected this bacteria that they named the Lazarus bacteria from salt crystals that they believed were 250 million years old. Now, we know that's not true, but that's what they believed. In 250 million years, the DNA should be very different if evolution were true. But guess what? It wasn't. It was the same. Now, if the flood was only about 4,500 years ago, that would explain why, first of all, we even find the bacteria, let alone the DNA in the bacteria. Even our calendars... Isn't it interesting that our oldest calendars are about 5,000 years old? The oldest language that can be reasonably reconstructed is also already modern and sophisticated. Evolutionists can't tell you where the origin of language came about. It just seems to be there, boom, immediately, and very sophisticated. As a matter of fact, the older the language, the more sophisticated it is. Yeah. Yeah. Today, I mean, you can even see the dumbing down of our language, like, dude, right? It is, I mean, listen to me. It has deteriorated greatly. How about the Chinese calendar? It's about 4,700 years old. They may have started around the time of the flood. In the year 2000, the Jewish calendar said it was 5,759 years, and that got a little bit messed up in Babylon. The Bible indicates it's about 6,000 years old. Why are the most reliable calendars agreeing with that? Because the Bible is true. Evolution's wrong. Jeremiah Films told us that 75% of children raised in Christian homes who attend public schools will reject the faith by their first year of college. And you know what? I see that statistic every day when I go out and travel throughout the country. I see parents and grandparents telling me, my child no longer goes to church. My child doesn't believe anymore. He went off to college. He went off to school. And guess what? Now he no longer believes God anymore. Why? Because they're hearing all these lies that are inconsistent scientifically, but they're not told that. And the church isn't giving people the answer for it. And as a result... They're leaving the church. And if you don't believe that's true, you need to get that book already gone and already compromised. They're on our website. You will see that people are leaving, our kids are losing their faith, leaving the churches today because they don't believe that the Genesis, the book of Genesis is accurate. Because the dating methods, the earth seems to be so old. No, it doesn't. You just aren't getting to hear the evidence saying that it is young. But guys... 
If you would put the evidence for a young earth and the evidence for an old earth on a scale, the scientific evidence, I'm telling you, the evidence far outweighs that the earth is young. But we're being brainwashed today. Literally brainwashed. And I'm hoping that this presentation is helping you to to open your eyes and realize this. In April of 2002, Discover magazine, they said, where did everything come from? And look at this. He says, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero. Nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. Guys, that's the only way you can make sense of that is come up with some theories and perhapses and maybes and go against science. Something comes from nothing. There is a law of science. The first law of thermodynamics says something can't come from nothing. But it happened. Why? Because we're here. Yeah, they say nothing really means nothing. From this state of nothingness, the universe began in a gigantic explosion called the Big Bang. Now, you tell me it doesn't take faith to believe in evolution? Something came from nothing. That sounds like faith. Can you do that in a lab today? Nope. Goes against the law of science even. But in our textbooks, what they're doing to our children is they give you all these facts they expect you to believe, won't allow you to question that in a very short period, and then they start teaching you about evolution. For example, they'll say, how did the universe come about 18 to 20 billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was something crammed in something smaller than a period on this page. And it was spinning, spinning, and spinning, and it blew up in the Big Bang. Everything in the universe. Now, by the way, that's not just Earth. That's not just our, you know, nine planets or eight, whatever you want to call it. It's not just our planets, not just our stars. The whole universe was crammed into an atomic particle. Spinning and blew up. Guys, that's faith, and that is not observational science. And frankly, the theory doesn't even meet science. When people talk about the universe began with a great explosion, ask them, universe, what does that mean? Because if you take the very word universe, una means one, single. Verse means spoken sentence. The very word itself, universe, tells us that this all began by a single spoken sentence. God said, and... It was. But Alan Goose says that the observational universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region. It's then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. If that isn't faith, I don't know what is. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does the Bible. But in our textbooks, they say that this nebula begins to rotate and it spins faster and faster and then boom, a star. Our sun is born in this big bang. As you can see that this could not be by looking at a merry-go-round on a playground. I know that they're getting rid of these things right and left because kids can't have any fun anymore. But on a merry-go-round, you get some kids on a merry-go-round, then go get some football players out there. Now, there, there's four stages to this. And that is this. Stage one is where the kids are saying, come on, you guys are supposed to be football players. Faster, faster, faster. That's stage one. 
Well, stage two kicks in. After they get going pretty fast, they're hoping and praying that the football players will stop spinning this thing because they're getting sick. But their pride will not allow them to speak up and say, stop. Stage three kicks in, and they find their voice again because now they they don't care about pride. They're scared to death, and they'll say, stop, stop, please, I'm telling my mom. Well, step four kind of completes the cycle where they lose their voice again because they are petrified as they fling off of this merry-go-round in the direction of the spin of the merry-go-round. This is what we call the conservation of angular momentum. And they will continue moving in the same direction as the spin of that merry-go-round until they hit an immovable force. This law of science, the conservation of angular momentum, shows us that this big bang idea is a joke. If everything is spinning and it blows up, everything also must keep that same angular momentum. Why is it then that Venus, Uranus, and possibly Pluto rotate backwards from the other six planets? Not only that, but eight of the 91 moons rotate backwards. Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune have moons orbiting in both directions. One evolutionist says, oh, that's easy. They just tipped upside down. (laughs) No. Uh, We do in our science camps, we take a bike tire and spin it. When it's moving, you can't turn it upside down. That's why you can ride with no hands on your bicycle. It doesn't want to turn over. If you can find a bike tire that you can spin, try moving it upside down. You can't do it without... It doesn't work because of a law of science. But that's what they want to tell you happened. No way. 2 Peter 3.10 says this, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth shall be burned up. See, guys, I believe in the Big Bang. It hasn't happened. It's a coming. Yeah. Speaking of laws of science, so let's look at the second law of thermodynamics as we get ready to wrap up here soon. The second law of thermodynamics says everything is wearing out, becoming, you know, usable energy becomes less usable. Simplified, it's entropy. Things wear out. You take this here, and we can see that over, you know, thousands of years, this thing just goes towards disorder, and it becomes dust. Now, that is perfectly in line with what the Bible says, that the heavens are the works of thine hands, and they shall perish. But you remain, and they all shall wax old, wear out as an old garment. The Bible says everything's wearing out. The law of thermodynamics says everything's wearing out. But evolution says, nope, everything's getting better. No, you didn't go to bed last night looking like this. No, you woke up and you saw the second law was at work. We see the second law here. Here's Sue when she's 20 years old. Here's Sue when she's 90 years old. Here's Sue when she's 3,000 years old. That is the second law at work. You all have a job because of the second law. But an evolutionist says, no, no, no. You see, the second law only applies to closed systems where you cannot add energy to fix things. You see... The earth is an open system. We receive energy from the sun. Uh, No, because you see the earth and the sun are also in a closed system of the universe. We are in a closed system. You cannot add energy to this universe. We're all wearing out. Even the sun is wearing out. 
And not only that, but when you add energy to something, it is destructive. It doesn't help. Adding energy always destroys. You need to have information. For example, a plant has information in it, and photosynthesis uses that to capture the energy to turn it into a usable form so it doesn't destroy it. There has to be information there for the energy to help you. So adding energy to something without that destroys it. For example, here, this textbook says, humans probably evolved from bacteria that lived more than 4 billion years ago. Now, how did that happen? Because energy caused that bacteria to grow. No, you take anything and add the sun's energy to it, it will destroy it without a mechanism to capture the energy and turn it into a usable form. Where did that mechanism come from? You have to have energy to make it, but yet you have to have it to get it. It doesn't make any sense. That's circular reasoning. The only way it could be there is if God created it, and then it could use the energy. The Japanese, they added all kinds of energy to Pearl Harbor, but it didn't organize anything, did it? No. You add energy to the roof of your house, it deteriorates it. To the roof of your car, it deteriorates it. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Adding energy only destroys. It is Jesus that sustains and holds all things together. We're wearing out, and we will be destroyed without Jesus. Your kids go ape in school, this article says. Here's why because they're being taught evolution. They're being taught they're pond scum, so why not act as if they're pond scum? If we evolve from pond scum, we're just animals, why not act like an animal? This textbook says, you are an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. No wonder our kids behave the way they do in schools. You're just an earthworm. You're just pond scum. Let's live consistently then, shall we? Why is it that the evolutionists say, hey, you're just pond scum, but they come home and they hug their kids as if they're the most special thing in the world? Why is it that Richard Dawkins is so inconsistent and says, you know, there's no purpose in life, so he's made it his very purpose in life to tell you there's no purpose in life? Those are inconsistencies. You want to see those inconsistencies? See our DVD on worldview weapons. We see the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Let me ask you this. If you died today, where would you go? Because I'll tell you something. God is going to judge you according to those Ten Commandments someday. And none of us in this room can keep those commandments. That's why we needed Jesus to come and fulfill that law for us. To die on the cross. To take our punishment that we deserve for breaking those commandments on His body. Rise from the dead so that we too someday could rise and claim Victory over death because of Jesus' death. To claim victory over sin because of the blood of Jesus. Where are you going to go when you die? Because if this earth is millions of years old, as we said before, Jesus Christ, His death, gives you no victory. This is important. Here's a tombstone of Wayne Everett Strickland. He says, atheist, I am a busy man. I don't have time for this. Sounds like this man's in hell and will be for an eternity all the time in the world to regret this. 
2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow or slack concerning His promise, as some men count slowness, but is long-suffering to us, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient with you. He has been very patient with us. But there is a day coming, the 11th hour, when no one's going to be hired, a day coming when His patience will run out. And you will stand before the Lord and He's going to ask you, why didn't you believe my word? Why didn't you trust me? I gave you the Bible, good acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. What on earth are you doing for God? What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? Are you living your life just for yourself? Or... Are you here for a purpose to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, guys, there's only two choices here with creation and evolution. If creation is true, there's a creator. If evolution, there's no creator. If evolution is true, there are rules between right and wrong. But if evolution is true, those rules are man-made, so you can obey them. You don't have to because there really are no commandments, no laws, just personal opinions. If creation is true, there is a purpose to this life. And therefore, you need to be finding out what that purpose is. And by the way, it's in the Bible. But if evolution is true, there is no purpose in life. So why are you even getting out of bed in the morning? If creation is true, man is a fallen creature and we need a Savior. But if evolution is true, man is evolving. We need no Savior. We are our own Savior. And really only that to get us through this earth. After that, it's all over anyway. If creation is true, man brought death into this world, disease and suffering. But if evolution is true, death brought man into this world. Creation is true, there's an afterlife. Not if there is evolution as of truth. If creation is true, there is comfort in knowing my future. If evolution is true, there is no hope, no comfort. And I know evolutionists say, well, you know, religion is, is opium for the people. It's just to give you, make you feel good and comfortable. That's not why I believe in God, but I'll tell you what, I'm thankful that it gives me comfort and hope because they are hopeless. And all they have to look forward to are the fires of hell for an eternity. Would you rather believe the words of the one who was there and who does know everything, the creator and sovereign God of the universe? Or would you rather trust the words of men who are anti-God who say you have no purpose, you come from pond scum, have hatred in their hearts, weren't there, don't know everything, but are claiming to know everything. They're being unscientific, illogical, and they're trying to tell you the earth is millions and billions of years old when I've shown you science that says it's not, that is directly in line with the Bible. You have a choice here tonight. You have a choice to say, to choose this day whom you will follow, man or God. And why you would want to follow man and, and science that is so filled with problems rather than science backed by the Bible, I have no idea why anybody would want to believe that. That's your choice tonight. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, then come and talk to me. You know, find more things on our website. 
and pray to God and say, God, come into my heart. Teach me. Show me that you're real. I want to make a challenge for you tonight. If you're an atheist or you're an unbeliever, I want you to do this for me. If you're an atheist, it makes no difference. No skin off your back. I want you to pray for the next 30 days this very thing. God, I don't really believe you exist, but if you do believe, but if you do exist, I pray that you would bring trials, hardships, and persecution, terrible things in my life today. And I want you to pray that every day for the next 30 days. If you don't believe in God, nothing's going to happen, right? Let's see if you really are an atheist. If you know so deep down in your heart that there is no God, that you're willing to pray to him and ask him to bring trouble into your life. Then start reading your Bible and let that Holy Spirit work faith into your hearts. Thank you.